All right, I'm going to get started. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, we will be two, if not three weeks on this discussion, just of Hebrews 6. Um, This is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Um, You know, it's funny, when we think of difficult or controversial Bible passages, we're trained by the culture to think of those as being the passages that are about male leadership or about homosexuality or about things that we may struggle with, but the culture finds just completely unacceptable. They make it a bigger issue for us than it otherwise would be. But Hebrews 6 is a different kind of difficult and controversial passage. Hebrews 6 is one that's difficult just for us by ourselves, and the world, the culture, doesn't care about it at all. Because Hebrews 6, I see, Hebrews 6 is about apostasy. It's about, um, it's in the realm of conversation, how certain is salvation? Uh, how certain are God's promises? And how is it possible, if God's promises are certain, that some people appear to take hold of those promises and then to walk away from the faith? Um, and so it's a tough issue. It's an emotional issue. It is one that we need to understand. It's one about which the author of Hebrews speaks clearly and directly. But we have to read it carefully and thoughtfully to understand exactly what the author is saying and what he is not saying. So I'm going to read chapter 6, or the portion, the top portion of it, and then I'm going to talk about a lot of other things, <laughs> knowing that next week and the week after, we're going to come back to this text. We're going to work our way through it, but we need to make sure that we've got the framework, the foundational knowledge to understand the way the author is going to use terms here. And I think it's a lot easier to have those discussions apart from this text and then reread it than it is to try and explain every single word as we go along. Um, So Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to start with verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, and you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, 
he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And we'll talk about the back half and about Melchizedek later, but um, I think that reminder of the certainty of God's promise and that God swore his promise by himself is an important part of um, what I just read there in chapter 6. So let me pray and then let's dive into a couple of concepts. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to worship and to learn and study your word. As we'll think about in the sermon this morning, our ability to love Christ and to follow Christ is directly connected to how much we know him. And so help us this morning uh, on the pages of scripture and in our hearts by the spirit to know Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. The word that gets translated church here and all across the New Testament is a word you're probably familiar with, ecclesia. So you'll hear uh, the really cool hipster Christians will talk about the ecclesia, the ecclesia, because they haven't taken Greek and don't know how to pronounce anything. Um, this is to dis- this word's used a lot to describe different sets of people in the New Testament. So in the sermon, I'm going to talk about um, the word uh, slave or bondservant and how that word doesn't have a one-to-one. There's not a word in English that means exactly what that word means in Greek. And so we have to use a lot of words to describe it. The challenge with Ecclesia is a little different, which is um, it does mean we do have English equivalents of it. The problem is we have multiple English equivalents of it because it can mean different things in different contexts. And so um, just generally, uh, more broadly, a broad way the term is used is for assembly. You, it's used this way a lot in Acts, like in Acts chapter 19, when it talks about the assembly was gathered. The word is ecclesia. Um, it also is used to mean all... Saved people. So sometimes when Ecclesia is used, it's referring to all of the people of faith, the whole body of redeemed uh, that have ever lived. Paul uses it this way a lot in Ephesians 5. This is how he's using that word. And in Hebrews 12, this word is used that way, where it means all of the people who will believe. In other places, um, it means a few Gathered Christians. So you have places in scripture where it's trying to make the point that in order for you to be the people of God and the people of God gathered together for the purpose of worship or discipline or any other function that God has ordained, you don't have to have a ton of people to count in God's eyes. You can have two or three Christians gathered together in the name of God, and they are an ecclesia. They are whatever this assembly or this word that we use church is. Romans 16 uh, uses the term that way, as does Colossians 4. It also is used to mean um, a particular church. And in the New Testament context, that often means all of the Christians in one city. So to the church at Ephesus, you refer to them as an ecclesia, all the Christians that are in that one geographic location, the church of God at Corinth, the church at Jerusalem, um, the disciples in Antioch. These are all one church, the way that the New Testament speaks of them. And then it also means all 
the churches, and really the people in them throughout the world. So it's a little different from this because this is not just people in all places, but this is people in all times. So sometimes the word is used to describe everyone who's ever believed, whether they're alive or dead or yet to be born. This one refers just to people who are alive, but to all the alive Christians in the world, all the people who are professing faith in the world. So it seems like what possible purpose does this discussion have? But it has an important purpose because as we talk about Hebrews 6 and we talk about uh, this word and how it's used, we need to understand that it is common for this word to have a lot of meanings. Not every time this word is used is it referring specifically to one of these, but it could be a different one. Um, And so the fact that it's varied in its use does not always refer to the same people or even people of the same status. And this is going to be an important discussion for later. Um, if it's an assembly, uh, if it's a particular church, does every single person in that assembly, does every single person in that particular church have saving faith? Isn't it the case that lots of people go to church without faith? That lots of people were gathered to these crowds, to these teachings, to these groups of believers in the New Testament context and today uh, that don't actually believe. And so the word itself can be used to describe everything from the perfect pure church throughout all of history, people who actually have faith and everyone who ever believes, right down to a group of three people gathered in the name of Jesus, one of them whom doesn't even believe in Jesus. Right? It's just saying that he does. And so there's a, a wide uh, collection of meanings for this particular term. So with all of these uses in mind, um, there are two terms that we use that are not in the Bible, but based on what the Bible teaches, that are helpful for us to make uh, this distinction. And the terms that we use are the visible and the invisible church. We think of the church of Jesus Christ as having two components, the visible church and the invisible church. So what would we say describes the visible church? What makes that up? That's not rhetorical. That's actual. It's made out of people that you can see real people. That's absolutely true. Okay. Yep. So I'll give you a shorthand definition. Um, The visible church consists of everyone who makes a credible profession of faith and their children. So that's why every church that you join, no matter what the vows are, no matter how serious they are about the vows, or like us, they're very serious about the vows and they just forget to ever have them taken publicly Sunday after Sunday. But... (laughs) No matter what is in the vows, there's always one statement in the vows that says, do you believe that, and then however it's worded, Jesus Christ is the Savior. And anyone who takes that vow and their children are members of the visible church. That, that has historically been the definition of the visible church. You're alive, you make a profession of faith, you show up. 
That's it. That's what we require of you. So you're not a member of the visible church just because you visit a church one time and you want to see what this is about. It takes that extra step of professing to have faith. Now, professing to have faith isn't the same thing as having faith. But we can't um, very well, and we certainly can't with absolute accuracy, identify the difference between true professions and false professions. So as a church, we take a very broad view, not just us, the whole Christian church takes a very broad view and says, we're going to take people at their word. And so in general, when they make a profession of faith, we are going to accept that. And then they are part of the visible church. Now, let me take just a moment and defend my statement that it includes the people who make that profession and their children, because many of us come from backgrounds where that is not the case. However, if you go back to where God started working with people uh, and started his covenant in Genesis 9, you'll see that every covenant God ever made with man included the children. Genesis 9, 9 through 17, 12, 1 through 3, 17, 7, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 29. Every covenant God ever made with people included their children. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, at the beginning of the New Testament, announces the same great principle. Acts 2, he says, the promise, just as to Abraham and his seed the promises were made, is unto you and to your children. So as Peter reiterates on behalf of Jesus Christ, the throwing open of the doors that the promise is now not more restrictive than it used to be, which is that it was made within Israel. And if you wanted a part of the promise, you had to come inside of Israel. Now Peter is announcing that the promise is open and available to all who do not need to become Jews. So the promise is made way more broad. And then uh, the theology a lot of us grew up in, certainly I did, says, well, it's made way, way more broad, except when it comes to children. And then it's made way more narrow. And the promises are not for your children until they are old enough and have made a credible profession of faith. Well, that's never what God did anywhere else in the Bible. And it's not what Peter says here. He says these promises are for you and your children. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says the children of believing parents are holy. That doesn't mean they are perfect, as any of us that have children are well aware. It means they're holy in the same way we are holy, which is that we are saints. We are members of the household and family of God. And so the expectation for Christian children is that these promises are for them. And one of the important doctrines that will help us flesh that out later is this distinction between that that doesn't mean that everyone who professes faith and is part of the family and household of God actually has saving faith. Some people will be, as Hebrews 6 talks about, they'll reveal themselves to be false sons. They'll reveal themselves to be chaff amongst the wheat. But how do we relate to people? Well, when somebody joins the church, we take their, we take them at their word. We take the profession of faith as a credible profession of faith. They might do lots of horrible, sinful things that cause us to challenge them and say, your behavior is not consistent with your profession. But when an adult joins the church, have you ever been in any church where they didn't give that adult the benefit of the doubt? Have you ever been in any church where they said to an adult, we hear your profession, we hear that you're willing to take these vows, but we're going to put you on a trial period until you've understood this stuff long enough, then you can come to the Lord's table and then you'll prove that you're really a sincere Christian. No church does that whatsoever. We look at adults and we say, we're going to take you at your word, we give you the benefit of the doubt. But when we look at our children, we say we're not going to give God the benefit of the doubt. 
God's the one who says these promises are for you and your children. God's the one who says these children are made holy. God's the one who said you raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You teach the child in the way he'll go and in the end they will not depart. God's the one who says all these things. And again, he's not making them as exhaustive statements. Every single child of every single Christian parent will end up in heaven. That's not what God says at all. But it's also not what God says about somebody taking a vow and joining a church, that every single person who ever does that is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so it's, who do you give the benefit of the doubt? Well, we should give the benefit of the doubt to God. This is what he tells us to do. Um, so that's how we treat children in this. The visible church contains both wheat and chaff. It contains those who will persevere in the faith, those that God has called to himself, but the visible church, including, uh, sadly, adults who join, and sadly, children who are born to Christian parents, there are some who will not stand firm, who will not hold to the faith, uh, who will not persevere in the faith of their parents. That is a harsh reality, and that's the reality that Hebrews 6 is about. So if that's the visible church, then what is the invisible church? So the important distinction here is it's... It's entered into by profession, either by the person or by the parent, but it contains both wheat and tares, right? That's, that's the understanding we've got to have of the visible church. Now, when we talk about the invisible church, it is entered into by something, and contains something else. So what is the invisible church? It is an invisible church where people don't come to it and the church is dead. No, you, you're right about the, you can't see it with your eyes. That part's right, but it's not dead. It's the opposite. Okay. Yeah, so the invisible church is entered into by faith. And you say, well, what's the difference? The visible church is entered into by faith. no. The visible church is entered into by profession. Anyone who says they believe is a member of the visible church. And we take them at their word and we trust they're doing that in good faith. But the reality is some of them are not doing it in good faith. Some of them will not persevere. The invisible church, which is invisible because we can't see it with our own eyes, is entered into by faith and it does not have tares. Because it only has God's elect. It only has wheat. It only has people with actual saving faith. People who are in the hand of Christ. And Christ says, none can be taken from my hand. So however it is you get in that group, which we would say is faith, and we can nuance that discussion. But once you're in that group, there is no getting out of it. Because you didn't put yourself in there. So you didn't work to get in, so you can't fail and get kicked out. You didn't hit a particular milestone to be let in, so you can't lose whatever it was you gained and get kicked out. You were brought in because Jesus Christ said, mine, and took you and put you in his hand. And Jesus Christ promises he will never undo that action. And so the the invisible church, this is how the confession says it, consists of the whole number, all, of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ. So this is uh, thinking about last week's sermon and the role of the church. All that are ultimately brought into Christ's family and who persevere because they have genuine faith. 
That is the invisible church. And it is an entirely pure church. Acts 13, 48 talks about this. These are the ones of whom Ephesians 3, 11 says were called from before the foundations of the earth were laid. This is who Jesus says in John 17 cannot be taken from his hand. So this is a different kind of church. Are there people in both categories? Yes, we hope so. <laughs> right? We absolutely hope so. Are there people in the visible church who are not in the invisible church? Yes, lots and lots. In fact, Scripture says we uh, people will be stunned on the day of judgment when Jesus says, no, I never knew you. No, but did we not say, Lord, Lord, and cast... Get away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's not something we have to be afraid of because we know what the conditions of entrance are, which are faith. But it's something we really got to keep in mind if we ever think that the condition of entrance is our good works. Or, you know, I think there will be a lot of uh, pastors and preachers who will be stunned on the day of judgment. You've made the profession. You're a member of a church like Covenant of Grace, like, right? That's visible. And I think there will be lots of people, Scripture, not I think, Scripture says the way is narrow and fewer those who find. But I think there'll be a lot of um, ministry leaders who think that because of the number of people that showed up in their pews or who think because of all the good lessons they taught, which is just works. It's, it's not like their works are particularly bad, but it's just works. It, it's, it's if, uh, if Oscar Schindler and Schindler's list had, had decided that what he was doing was the way to heaven besides just a good, moral, noble thing to do, right? It's all just good works. And it doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter how religious they appear to be. It doesn't matter how connected to the church they are. At the end, if we stand before Christ and we say, I'm in because here's my resume. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But if we stand before Christ and say, I, I stand here on nothing but the righteousness of Christ alone. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. That's the context, by the way, in which that verse is to be used. It's not that the good things we do don't matter. It's not that the good things we do aren't actually good to God. God sees them as good. He is delighted by our good works and our righteousness. But if we're going to stand before Christ in judgment and we're going to hold up those good works, that's going to be a bad day for us. John. Uh, you talk about the way is narrow. Scripture also talks about there are many mm-hmm. who will turn and follow him. Yeah. How do we sort of reconcile this? Yeah, because both are true. <laughs> the way's not so narrow that it's only, you know, you, me, and I'm not so sure about thee, right? <laughs> um It's also true that most of the time when scripture talks about the broadness of it, it's talking about broad categories. So it's funny in our minds, if we're not careful, we tend to think about this exactly the opposite way that scripture does. We tend to think a lot of people will be in heaven and most of those people, we would never say this out loud, will be a lot like me. They'll be reasonably educated. There'll be this socioeconomic status. I'm not saying their skin's white, but you know, that's the way we think about it is we know a lot of good people 
And those people should be in. I mean, they're not, you know, great believers or anything, but, but they do right by people and good by their families. And, and so we tend to think scripture's really broad in terms of the requirements for getting in. And it just so happens most people who meet those requirements are kind of like us. And scripture says just the opposite, that the way is actually quite narrow. There are a few who find it, but among those who find it, it's incredibly broad. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who are not like us in education at all, people who don't have the ways of thinking that we have, people with different socioeconomic statuses, people, all those differences that are so top of mind for us, non-existent at the gates of heaven. Does that help? So a lot of times when scripture talks about all or every or broad or it's meaning in that sense because it knows how close-minded and short-sighted we are to who's actually going to inherit the kingdom. But, but you would still want to balance that with the promise to Abraham that your descendants will be as numerous as the That's, stars of heaven. I mean, the yeah, there's, there's not a population problem. problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Part of that is just math. We have, we have 6,000 years of every person who's ever lived. Even if the way is narrow and fewer those who find it, it is a lot of people. <laughs> it is a lot um, all right. Um, what is a what is a analogy that the Bible provides by way of history for this visible invisible church distinction? Tabernacle. More broad than that. Israel itself. Were there members of visible Israel? There were sons of Abraham. There were lots of them. Lots and lots of descendants. Was every member of Israel Israel? No. Lots of Israel by blood were not Israel by faith. Entire generations were caused to die out for lack of faith. Ultimately, God brought destruction on the entire national structure Because of a lack of faith. And yet, there have always been and will always be until the Lord comes. Those who are by blood Israel and by faith family of God. Uh, That point is made in Revelation. That there are plenty of Jews by ethnicity, by nationality. Well, now we'd have to say ethnicity, I guess. There are plenty of Jews by ethnicity, by blood who will actually believe and inherit the promises of God. Uh, Not that they get saved by a different method, as some churches teach, that as long as Israel keeps their laws and keeps being faithful Israel, God's going to be satisfied with that. No no go on that one. Um, But the promises are still for them, which are to believe God uh, and what God has done now in Jesus Christ. So this is why Paul says in Romans 11, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That's what Paul will say in Romans 11, is that Israel was made up of the elect and the hardened. All right, so it is really important that we get this in our minds, that we are clear on the visible-invisible distinction. Because when we begin to talk about apostasy next week and this falling away that's described in Hebrews 6, this distinction is critical to our understanding. Without it, I don't think we can make heads or tail of this passage 
um, because it, it really says some scary stuff. So do you understand how you could be a member of a church and not be a Christian? Right? So we don't struggle with that one. I was at a secret church, I know. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so, all right, so everybody's clear on that. You can be a member of a church and not be a Christian. Now, what you've got to understand in Greek is that what I just said in English is exactly what you could say in Greek with this word. You can be a member of Ecclesia and not be a Christian. You can be a member of the assembly and not be a Christian. You could be one of a few gathered people in the Lord's name and not be a Christian. You could be a member of a particular church and not be a Christian. You could be a member of the body of Christians in a particular city and not be a Christian. And the New Testament will use language that makes us really uncomfortable. And this is the language that blew up the PCA several years ago. The Bible says you can be a member of the family and household of God and not be a Christian. You can be a member of the covenant and not be a Christian. Now that's really tough for us and it requires a lot of explanation around how broadly scripture uses those terms sometimes. But scripture says that you can be a member of the covenant and maybe we would feel better if we said covenant community, which is fine if that gives us clarity. But scripture says you can be a member of the covenant and not be elect Israel, not be elect church by faith. Scripture uses language that pushes us to our, the limits of our comfort zone on this. And if we reject what scripture says on that point, Hebrews 6 becomes really problematic for us. We really cannot come away without saying, I guess you can lose your salvation. And that's why it's so important that we walk through what does this word mean and how does the Bible use it? What does that look like as God has always worked with his people? This concept has always been in place. Even with Abraham's own sons, were their son, they were sons. They were members of the covenant because the covenant was made to Abraham and to his children. But were they all members by faith? No. Now, we're going to get into, with human eyes, not so good at making that distinction. So we're going to talk about what the implications of that are. But just at the word level, the membership level, you can be a member of this. Family of God. Ooh, a member of the family of God who's not elect. There's a very narrow sense in which the New Testament uses the word elect, but where it does seem to say you can be a member of the elect and not be saved, but not the way we use elect here, a different way the word elect is used, which is you were born into the church. Your, your children were foreordained from before the foundations of the earth were laid, that they were going to be born to Christian parents. 
And so they were born into the church and God had that done on purpose. That was part of God's plan. And so you could say from the beginning of the foundations of the earth, they were elect to this membership. That, that gets really tough. <laughs> so I don't get hung up on that one. But as I study scripture, I have no problem whatsoever with the rest of the language, which is you can be a member of the church. You can be a member of the family of the household of God. You can be a member of the covenant. You can be a member of the covenant community and not actually have saving 